Thank you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We're now continuing with Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the completion, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and the sacraments. Well, it's a very beautiful uh, period of the year, of course, June being dedicated to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and we're right up against the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So, in a way, I feel guilty for not having a very uh, warm-hearted and positive show about the Sacred Heart of Jesus, but I hope I'll be able to weave that in. I wanted to dedicate today's show to St. Dieter Stein, uh, who is a very, very wonderful saint who epitomizes what a saint should be, which means, wh whether we like it or not, what we are supposed to be, what a human being is supposed to be, and certainly what a Catholic is supposed to be. And the reason I'm doing that today is because if you are a regular listener, you may remember that uh, a week or two ago, I spoke about the turn that Judaism took in the 20th century, and in particular, the effect on Jewish theology of the Holocaust and the helplessness, essentially, of Jewish theology to deal with the tragedy of the Holocaust, and therefore, the way that the tragedy of the Holocaust sort of hijacked Jewish theology and in many cases turned it into an anti-theology, into a rejection of God or a lack of belief in God rather than the correct attitude, which is, of course, not only to have a total belief in God, but also to have a total belief in divine providence, that God is all good, that God is all loving, that God is taking care of us, and that everything that happens, even if it seems extremely unpleasant at the time, is a mysterious part of divine providence, for our good and for the good of humanity. Now, I hope that we know that as Catholics. Uh, Jews, by and large, do not have the benefits that we have to understand divine providence, and therefore the Holocaust was almost a death blow to uh, religious Judaism, except in the case of the most religious Jews, but the kind of mainstream, everyday kind of cafeteria Jews had a great deal of trouble dealing with the Holocaust, and many of them turned away from God. And yet, we have this beautiful example of St. Dieter Stein, who, of course, also was a Jew, but she was a Jew who had followed Judaism into the Catholic Church, which, of course, is the continuation of Judaism after the coming of the Je Jewish Messiah, who is Jesus. And she, as a Catholic and as a Catholic saint, was able to fully understand and process the fact of the Holocaust and uh, in the conventional expression, not only talk the talk, but walk the walk, because she went to one of the most miserable deaths experienced by men in the last few hundred years, the death at Auschwitz in the death camps after a horrible, horrible uh, arrest and abuse and journey to the death camps. And she did so joyfully and lovingly and in union with Christ. And in fact, 
uniting her suffering with Christ. So that's why I wanted to talk about St. Dieter Stein as a kind of counterpoint, the kind of the true Jewish, so to speak, understanding of the Holocaust as opposed to the misguided Jewish understanding of the Holocaust, which unfortunately Jews who don't have the benefit of knowing Jesus fell into. So I hope that wasn't too long-winded an introduction to today's show. Um, I will uh, recap a little bit with, uh, in, the, in other words, I'll spend the next few minutes recapping kind of the bottom line conclusion of the previous show, which is basically when you stop to think about it, Old Testament Judaism with respect to the Jews is kind of founded on three principles. One, God is all good, all loving, and all powerful. Yep, check. We know that's true. Number two, the Jews are the chosen people, special favorites of God. Now, we know that was true in the days of the Old Testament because it's in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is the divinely revealed word of God. The extent to which that continues today is open to debate, but of course, in the Jewish point of view, to a Jewish mind, of course, the Jews were the chosen people in the Old Testament and nothing has changed, so they still should be the chosen people. And the third principle that permeates the relationship between God and the Jews in the Old Testament is, in fact, that good will be rewarded in this life and evil will be punished in this life. This sounds quite counterintuitive to us as Catholics because, of course, we understand that's not the case, that the true reward and punishment for the way we live our lives on earth comes after we die. But that, in fact, is not the Jewish understanding by and large and is not reflected in the Old Testament. Now, that may seem mysterious, but in fact is quite logical. The reason why there is very little revelation in the Old Testament of what happens after you die is because we know as Catholics that until Jesus descended to the dead on Holy Saturday after the crucifixion, heaven was not open, was not open. No one was in heaven. That, in fact, the souls of the righteous were in this, what Catholic theology calls the limbo of the patriarchs or the limbo of the just. They were awaiting the Messiah for the gates of the heaven to be opened so that they could go to heaven, which is what happened on, on Holy Saturday. However, since there were no Jews, so to speak, in heaven in the days of the Old Testament, it's only logical that there should have been no revelation of the truth of the afterlife in heaven in the Old Testament. And that is, in fact, the case. Um, there are vague hints of it. Um, I have some in front of me, but I don't think I'll spend the time to read them. I'll read one of them just to give a flavor from Daniel 12. At that time, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's actually a prophecy in the days of Daniel of what's going to happen after the Messiah comes, that's what this passage is about. After the Messiah comes, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. In other words, there will be the particular judgment and some will go to heaven and some will unfortunately be lost. But it's a very vague sense, right? Anyway, and that's the general, that's always the case in the Old Testament. And the 
Uh, on the other hand, the promise that good will be rewarded in this life and evil will be punished in this life is totally, totally explicit in the Old Testament. And uh, let me just read a passage, a very typical passage about that. It's from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7. Uh, and actually, this is relevant, particularly relevant, because this passage immediately follows upon the passages that are part of the Shema, which is a central prayer of Judaism that's recited three times a day by Jews. And this passage, which follows shortly thereafter, after the Shema, says, this is God speaking, And because you hearken to these ordinances and keep and do them, the Lord your God will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the young of your flock in the land which he swore your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all people, and there shall not be male or female barren among you, nor among your cattle, and the Lord will take away from you all sickness. So there we really have a health and wealth gospel, so to speak, that God is promising the Jewish people that if they do the commandments and are faithful to the commandments, everything will go well in this life. So you see this pickle, so to speak, that this put the Jews in, in the face of the Holocaust. And coming out of the Holocaust, many of the uh, not super Orthodox Jews, not very, very religious Jews who survived the Holocaust, turned their backs on God because they just couldn't resolve, couldn't come to a resolution of what had befallen the Jewish people in the Holocaust with these principles that God is all good, all loving, all powerful, that the Jews are the chosen people, and that what happens in this life will be reward or punishment for what you do in this life. And uh, the last show, I kind of um, beat the dead horse and went through a lot of quotes by a lot of Jewish theologians. I'll restrict myself perhaps to two or three, because this is just the introduction to today's show, which is really about Edith Stein, who was quite the opposite. Um, in other words, she did see God in everything. Uh, but I'll just give two. One is from Rabbi Arthur Hertzberg, who was a very prominent American rabbi. He was the president of the American Jewish Committee. I think it's committee, AJC, Congress or Committee, and a World Jewish Congress and so forth. He also was my hometown rabbi growing up. And in his memoirs, he wrote, quote, I was aware then in 1948 that I could never return to the Orthodox faith in God. I would not forgive him for the Holocaust, and I would not absolve him by agreeing that the death camps had existed in a realm that he could not control. Okay, so basically, Rabbi Hertzberg's response was he decided that God was not good. He was not willing to, quote, absolve him by saying he was not all-powerful and couldn't have done anything. And since he didn't do anything to stop it, he must not be all good. That's not the genuine Jewish proper view of God, needless to say. Um, as a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, um, over and over and over again, <clears throat> it says exactly the opposite. Excuse me. True, uh, those are put, this is from Isaiah 45. Those are put to shame and disgrace who vent their anger against him. Before him in shame shall come all who vent their anger against him. Well, you just heard an example of uh, Rabbi Hertzberg venting his anger against God. Um, I Excuse me while I clear my throat. 
Okay. And, um, and then we have Einstein, who uh, continued to believe in God, but decided that God did not intervene in human affairs. The quote from him is, I believe in Spinoza's God, not in a God who concerns himself with the fate and doings of mankind. So then it becomes like a clockmaker kind of a God that's totally distant from anything having to do with man, which also, by the way, means there's no ability to rely on him and no purpose or meaning to prayer. And um, finally, there is the uh, another very conventional Jewish response, which was that God is dead. It was actually, I think it was the cover of a Time magazine in the early 1960s, Is God Dead? The God is Dead movement. And um, uh, anyway, I'll give a quote that reflects that from another Jewish rabbi theologian, uh, Richard Rubenstein. Uh, quote, God really died at Auschwitz. Though most of us will refrain from antisocial behavior, it will be because of fear of ourselves or others rather than fear of God. Ultimately, as with all things, it will pass away, for omnipotent nothingness is Lord of all creation. Okay, enough of this dreary, depressing, you know, misguided, quote, Jewish, close quote, response to the theology uh, excuse me, the response to the Holocaust in their theology. Now, in fact, we know as Catholics that we do need Christianity to make sense out of life. Remember, hail Holy Queen in this Valley of Tears. This is, in fact, a Valley of Tears. If nothing else, we all die. That's actually good news, not bad news. I fervently hope and expect that the day I die is going to be the happiest day of my life. But nonetheless, many people... Um, dread death and even if our own death is going to be happy for us of course many many people who we live love in this life will die and will die while we're still alive and that will be tremendous suffering and um, if we're so lucky as to live long enough we will grow old and feeble and dependent on others and perhaps even incontinent and not being able to take care of our own needs and and, um, you know, have difficulty or discomfort or even pain moving or eating or just going through the day. There's a lot of suffering associated with old age, um, never mind with dying and so forth and so on. Basically, there's a famous story of, um, I think it was, uh, it's a Buddhist story. It has to do with Buddha. And um, somebody, I don't remember the whole story, somebody kind of complains to him, about suffering and about the need to suffer and buddha sends him out and you know with this little like teaspoon and says you know stop at all the houses you pass and ask for a mustard seed from everybody who doesn't suffer and of course the person comes back without a single grain of of mustard seed in the spoon i'm butchering that story but you get the picture nobody goes through this life without a tremendous amount of suffering and we need, in fact, Christianity to make sense of it. Uh, the Second Vatican Council has a very beautiful document, Gaudium et Spes, which says the following, Only in the mystery of the incarnate word does the mystery of man take on light. In fact, Christ, the final Adam, fully reveals man to himself and makes his supreme calling clear. Through Christ and in Christ, the riddles of sorrow and death grow meaningful. 
as from Gaudium et Spes, paragraph 22. And it uh, clearly is a reference to the mystery of suffering, as St. John Paul II wrote in his um, apostolic letter, Salvifici Dolores, on the Christian meaning of human suffering. He wrote, These words certainly refer in a very special way to human suffering. Precisely at this point, the revealing of man to himself and making his supreme vocation clear is particularly indispensable. The, the meaning of suffering and the need for suffering is actually reflected when we look at our Savior on the cross. What was the ultimate act of God when he became man? It was to suffer and die for our redemption from our sin. What is the ultimate meaning in our lives is to a large extent is to lovingly accept suffering, uniting it with the suffering of Christ on the cross, and therefore bringing down buckets of grace for all of mankind, for the salvation of souls, for the consolation of um, the hearts of God and Jesus and Mary, for all of the outrages and insults and blasphemies and so forth, and for the grace of conversion, so that more people will end up in heaven and fewer will end up in hell. And all of that, the consolation of God and the conversion of sinners comes about through A, prayer, and B, suffering offered up in love, united to the suffering of Christ. That's the most valuable thing we can do in this life, pretty much. That's the point, by the way, of John Paul II's apostolic letter on the Christian meaning of suffering. It's basically an entire beautiful paean of praise to man's high vocation to suffer and to offer up that suffering, suffering for the conversion of sinners and the consolation of the sacred heart of Jesus, of growing, getting the sacred heart of Jesus in this show, one way or another. So anyway, and of course, Edelstein was fully aware of that and uh, participated very, very, very fully in uniting her suffering with the suffering of Christ. And in fact, uh, it actually goes deeper than that. And um, I have to take a deep breath when I think about launching into these deep waters. But what she did actually was even deeper than that, because what she did was, of course, she was Jewish, but she was also Catholic. And she understood the need to unite one suffering with the suffering of Christ on the cross. And she knew the real meaning of that suffering, and she perished in Auschwitz, where six million Jews perished, and she consciously took it upon herself to be a kind of a vehicle, an intermediary, to unite their suffering with the suffering of Christ. They didn't know enough to unite their suffering with the suffering of Christ, but she didn't want their suffering to be wasted. So she saw herself as a kind of a, a conduit, a pipeline, that could gather in the suffering of the other Jews who didn't know better, unite it with her suffering and her death, and bring it to Christ on the cross. So with that um, introduction, I... Um, well, actually, I'll add to that introduction, and then my plan is to read from Edith Stein's writings that re very beautifully reflect her understanding of the salvific meaning of suffering 
and her understanding of her vocation to suffer and die, among other things, for the conversion of the Jewish people. Deep breath. Calm down, Roy. Okay. One other little introductory note, maybe two, which I think are extremely relevant. Edith Stein actually simultaneously died for her Jewish faith and for her Catholic faith. So you could say that her martyrdom itself, insofar as it was a martyrdom, was simultaneously, she was martyred for her Jewishness and martyred for her Catholicness. And let me explain that. Many of you perhaps know the story, but in any case, she... um, uh, I'm trying. I'm thinking of how to short circuit the story so I don't spend the whole sh- show talking about her life. But in any case, she was born in 1891. She grew up um, in in Breslau, which was Germany at the time. It's Poland now. She uh, grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family. She was pious. She lost her faith at about 14. She was very intellectual. She was very brilliant even then, and uh, on a passionate search for truth and she decided that God was not real and she was going to be true to her belief and therefore she basically became atheist but she was still searching for truth and so she pursued philosophy she came back to a belief in God she um, uh, immediately when when she entered the Catholic Church yes she entered the Catholic Church and at the end of the show if there's still time I'll talk about her conversion experiences, but she became passionately Catholic. She immediately just wanted to become a Carmelite religious and devote the rest of her life to worship of God. But um, she was encouraged, she, she was told by her spiritual director, who was a Carmelite abbot, that she had a job to do in the world. So she worked in the world for about 15 years, uh, first as a university professor and then as a high school teacher when the Jews weren't allowed to teach in university anymore. But then when she couldn't even work as a high school teacher because of the restrictions that the Nazis had placed on Jewish activities after Hitler came to power, she finally was allowed to enter a Carmelite convent. She entered the Carmelites, I believe it was 1933, could be off by a year or two, um, in Germany. In Cologne, but then when the Nazis started flexing their muscles in 1938 and uh, rioting against the Jews and burning down synagogues and smashing all Jewish stores and so forth, it was actually Kristallnacht in 1938 that made her aware she had to leave Germany. She moved to a convent in the Netherlands, but in 1940, the Germans invaded the Netherlands. Five days later, the uh, Dutch army surrendered. <laughs> And the Netherlands also was under Nazi control. And the Nazis then progressively made more and more restrictions on the Jews in the Netherlands. Um, they weren't allowed to work. They, they weren't allowed to have bicycles, actually. They uh, were not allowed in the markets. They were not allowed in public places. Some buildings had signs put up, no Jews allowed. Uh, Jews were not being allowed to be taught by non-Jews, and they weren't allowed to teach non-Jews. Um, then, pretty soon, all Jews had to go into the government office and be registered. And then, uh, about a little bit after that, they all had to wear visible yellow stars on their 
on their clothing, on their left breast, so that they could be identified as Jews and so forth. The, the Nazis basically cranked down you know, the, the pressure on them, this kind of progressive, making things harder and harder and worse and worse persecution of the Jews. And, um, and then in 1942, the Nazi officer who was actually in charge of Holland made it clear that the Jews would be deported. And at that point, the, there was a kind of interdenominational organization of Christian pastors that included, I think there were 11 uh, denominations in there, 10 Protestant sects and the Catholic Archbishop that would get together and you know for ecumenical affairs. And they got together and they decided to condemn the Nazi persecution of the Jews in Holland. Well, the Nazi high command got wind of the fact that the, the, uh, the Christian groups had all gotten together and were about to condemn the Nazi persecution of the Jews at uh, Sunday services on uh, July 26, 1942, this was. They were all going to give homilies in, in the Protestant churches and the Catholic churches condemning the Nazi persecution of the Jews. Well, the Nazis basically threatened the Protestant denominations um, with retaliation if they went ahead and did this, so they backed off. But the um, Dutch archbishop did not back off, and he insisted that the homily would be read in all of the Catholic churches on that Sunday, and it was. And then the Nazis retaliated by uh, immediately deporting all Catholics of, with Jewish blood, all Catholics of Jewish origin, all Jews had been baptized into the Catholic Church, deporting them to the death camps. Actually, exactly one week later, they rounded up them up and they deported them. It was very easy for them to do it because all of the Jews had already had to be registered. Anyway, it, it was no trick at all to go through the you know files at Nazi headquarters and know exactly where all the Catholic Jews were. I think the number was not that great. It was in the hundreds. I don't remember whether it's 300 or 400. Um, it was over 400. But it wasn't, you know, it was whatever, between 400 and six or 700. They were rounded up and uh, by and large shipped off to the death camps. And that included, of course, Edith Stein, who was in the Carmelite convent there, and her older sister, Rosa, who was also in the Carmelite convent. She was not a nun. But she was, um, I don't know what the right word is, but, but she was basically a, a lay woman living and working for the convent. And they're, they're cloistered, the Carmelites, so they're jobs that you want a non-Carmelite to do, like probably going down to the grocery store or, you know, going down to the police station or, you know, uh, they call them externs, I guess, the religious who are involved with the external world. And so she was like an extern there, but she was a layperson extern there. Anyway, so on that night, the following Sunday night, I think it was about two o'clock in the morning, uh, they were rousted out of the convent, Edith Stein and her sister Rosa, and given like five minutes to collect their belongings and thrown in the back of a truck and um, basically put on their way to Auschwitz. Boy, I went into a long song and dance there, but the point was, think about this, it's kind of neat. They were simultaneously 
slated for death because they were Jews and because they were Catholics. Because they, um, okay, they would have been slated for death as Jews, but because they were Catholic, they were exempted from it because the Nazis at the time were sparing the Jews who had been baptized because that basically they were trying to avoid unnecessary commotion and uprising. So they did that as a conciliatory gesture to the Christian churches and to the Catholic church. But then because the Catholic bishop refused to compromise the truth and insisted on preaching the truth from the pulpit in retaliation against the Catholic bishops for doing that, Edith Stein and her sister Rosa were earmarked for death. So, see what I mean? It's quite a conundrum. Were they um, sent to Auschwitz for being Jews, or were they sent to Auschwitz for being Catholics, or were they sent to Auschwitz for being Catholic Jews? But you see how the, interesting the martyrdom itself is. So, not only did she go to her death willingly, uniting her suffering with the suffering of Christ for the redemption of mankind, including explicitly for the grace of conversion and salvation for her fellow Jews. But she did so consciously roping in, so to speak, um, gathering in the suffering of all of the other Jews at Auschwitz who didn't know to do that with hers for that intention. So I hope I did an okay job of kind of painting that picture. We usually take a short musical break about halfway through, and it is about halfway through. It's perhaps exactly halfway through the show right now. So we will go to that short musical break. When we come back, I will read some extracts of Edith Stein's writings that reflect this incredibly beautiful spirit with which she accepted her martyrdom. Now, let me just say the music I'm about to play it's in a way religious, it's in a way not religious, it's instrumental. It's from Mahler's Fifth Symphony. Mahler was a Jewish Catholic convert. That's one reason I'm choosing it. He was a very passionate Catholic, um, but he was born and raised Jewish. He entered the Catholic Church with a very, very deep conversion, which is reflected in his music. And this passage I'm going to play, it's only about two and a half minutes long, is simultaneously incredibly sad but also there is a real redemptive quality at the end of it. A real, it's like through the cross to the resurrection, so to speak. So that's why I chose it. So with that, let's hear a short passage from Mahler's Fifth Symphony, the Adagietto, uh, a kind of, a, you know, through the passion, in this case of the Holocaust, to the resurrection that we all look forward to. You're listening to Roy Shoman on Radio Maria. The show is Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism. And this is a live call-in show, so I keep forgetting, but the number here is 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y. And if you wish to call in during the musical break, when I come out of the break, I'll look at the call board and see if there are any callers. So with that, let's turn to Mahler's Fifth. Thank you. 
Well, I uh, hope you enjoyed that. And I hope that uh, perhaps at the end of the show, when uh, for the music to close the show with, I'll um, perhaps go back to that so you can hear a little more of that. I'm afraid that that clip may have ended a little bit before the resurrection. So my apologies. Anyway, back to, uh, let me check to see uh, if any, uh, no, it doesn't look like any callers called. So you're so welcome to call 866-333-6279. But I will go back to uh, Edith Stein and this show that's dedicated to Edith Stein. By the way, her feast day is August 9th. If you want to put that on your calendar, I will definitely be celebrating her feast. I will actually be speaking at Monastery Edith Stein in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg, in the Jewish section of Brooklyn. There's a wonderful contemplative uh, monastery of nuns that are pray before the Blessed Sacrament exposed 24-7 with the prayer intention for the conversion of the Jews. So anyway, that's how I'll be celebrating her feast day. Uh, but anyway, back to Edith Stein, back to 1933. It was in 1933 that she was able to join the Carmelite convent as a nun. And I will start telling some quotes from her memoirs about that period. Now, she wrote in her memoirs about a inspiration she had. She was praying at the Carmelite convent in 1933 uh, during a holy hour before the Blessed Sacrament exposed, of course. And this is what she wrote about that moment. I spoke with the Savior to tell him that I realized it was his cross that was now being laid upon the Jewish people, that the few who understood this had the responsibility of carrying it in the name of all, and that I myself was willing to do this if he would only show me how. I left the service with the inner conviction that I had been heard, but as uncertain as ever as to what carrying the cross would mean for me. So, think about that. I spoke with the Savior to tell him I realized it was his cross that was now being laid upon the Jewish people. She saw what was coming. Um, she saw that the Jewish people were in for a great deal of suffering. She understood that it was the cross of Christ that was being laid on them in this suffering. She knew that it was, and she knew that they didn't know that it was. And she told Jesus that she understood that the few who understood about uniting it to the cross of Christ had the responsibility of carrying that suffering in the name of all, and that she herself was willing to do it if he would only show her how. So you see how, in a um, not very subtle way, actually, she is signing up. She is. She's signing up for Auschwitz. Signing up for Auschwitz. She's, uh, when she prays that. Now, the um, also that year, let me read another quote from her memoirs. I understood the cross as the destiny of God's people, which was beginning to be apparent at the time. This is again 1933. I felt that those who understood the cross of Christ could take it upon themselves on everybody's behalf. Beneath the cross, I understood the destiny of God's people. So again, she understood that it was the cross of Christ. 
he felt that those who understood that should take it upon themselves on everyone's behalf. And that's, of course, her taking it on herself on behalf of all of the Jews who did not, of course, know what was going on and were unable to consciously unite it with the suffering of Christ. Let me actually get a little bit speculative here. Um, I'm, what I'm saying is, is speculative. In other words, it may be true, it may not be true. But I think it's worth thinking about that even the Jew, though the Jewish people were not consciously united with Christ, didn't believe in Christ, they were united to him by blood. They were blood relatives of his. And might there be another kind of a uniting their suffering with the suffering of Christ that might have been affected in some mystical, mysterious way by the fact, A, that they were united by blood in a sense with Christ, that they were of the same people, and B, that the persecution of the Jews actually came from a hatred of Christ. That's obvious, actually, if you stop to think about it. Uh, because, first of all, there are really only two armies in the world. There's the army of Christ and the army of Satan. And Satan has never forgiven the Jews for Christ, for bringing about his downfall, right? Salvation, Jesus said salvation is from the Jews, right? That used to be the name of the show. Of course, Satan has a, has a very vehement hatred of the Jews because they indirectly brought about his downfall with the coming of Christ. Satan can't come, can't get at Christ directly. So he tries to get at the followers of Christ, and maybe he also tries to get at the relatives of Christ, so to speak, at, at Christ's family, which are the Jews. Um, so this is all speculative, but... Um, Oh, and of course, Hitler also, by the way. Um, in, in, even in Mein Kampf, Hitler's writings show that his contempt for Christ and Christianity and his contempt for Jews and Judaism are uh, first cousins of each other. They, they actually are, are like two tributaries of the same river. So I'm just trying to paint this picture. Uh, maybe, maybe even though they didn't know to consciously unite they are suffering with the suffering of Christ when they went to the gas chambers of Auschwitz, when they suffered at Auschwitz, the Jews. Um, maybe mystically there was an element of that anyway, and maybe mystically that element uh, flowed through those few who were able to consciously unite their um, suffering as Jews with the suffering of Christ on the cross. Back to Edestein who is much clearer than I am. So um, if, if you bear with me until I get to her words, you'll probably get out of this Saragossa sea of you know, spaghetti bowl and into clear thinking. So, okay, then comes Kristallnacht, um, 1938, which, as I mentioned, was this, this big nationwide riots against the Jews in Germany, uh, orchestrated riots, by the way, and uh, I don't think I'm supposed to get political on this show, but we know about orchestrated riots right now, I think, that when you have these spontaneous riots breaking out 
you know, in, in cities across the country on the same night, it would be one heck of a coincidence if they weren't actually organized and um, being coordinated by the powers that be. Anyway, so anyway, that's what Kristallnacht was like. And then uh, following Kristallnacht, uh, this is what Edith Stein wrote, quote, This is the shadow of the cross that falls upon my people. Oh, if they would only realize that is the fulfillment of the curse which my people have called down upon themselves. Now, this is, of course, super, super, super controversial because nobody likes to talk about that self-imprecation that the Jews in front of Pontius Pilate's palace, when Pontius Pilate said, this man is innocent, I wash my hands of this innocent man's blood. Of course, the Jewish leaders cried out, his blood be on us and on our children. This has always been, needless to say, an extremely unpleasant fact to deal with, both for Christians and also, of course, for Jews. Now, the, um, uh, however, I would like to make a little counterpoint to that, which is that Pope Pius XI, which very interestingly, Pope Pius XI was, of course, um, the Pope leading up to, um, the, actually, during the rise of Nazism, during the rise of Nazism in Germany, not during World War II itself, but certainly in the 1930s in Germany, he was the nuncio to Berlin, I believe. No, Pius Twelfth was the nuncio to Berlin because he wasn't Pope yet. Pius XI was Pope, excuse me, I had that a little bit wrong. Um, any case, he wrote a prayer for the Feast of Christ the King, which goes as following. Of old, the Jews called down upon themselves the blood of the Savior. May it now descend upon them as a shower of redemption and life. Isn't that beautiful? So it's like jujitsu. He's turning around. He's turning around the um, that curse, so to speak, that the Jews call down upon themselves. His blood be on us and on our children. And he's saying, yes, let the blood of Jesus pour down on the Jews from the cross as they asked for it, but not as a curse, but pour down as the shower of redemption and life. Because, of course, Jesus' blood from the cross is our shower of redemption and life. You can't do better than that. So, um, anyway, I, I just wanted to kind of flip that around a little bit. Um, that's not exactly the sentiment that Edith Stein, of course, expressed when she when she said that the uh, Holocaust was the fulfillment of the curse. Anyway, then again, same year, Einstein wrote, human activities cannot help us, but only the suffering of Christ. It is my desire to share in it. Okay, so again, she, she was writing a blank check. She was writing a blank check to Jesus. She was volunteering herself. For any suffering and death that he might want to send her for his own purposes, and including the salvation and conversion of the Jewish people. And that was made explicit because in 1939, the following year, she wrote a kind of spiritual last will and testament, which I will read a short passage from here. Um, and so she wrote in her spiritual last will and testament on June 9, 1939, the following, quote, I joyfully accept in advance 
the death that God has appointed for me, in perfect submission and with joy, as being his most holy will. May the Lord accept my life and my death for the atonement of the unbelief of the Jewish people and for this, that the Lord may be accepted by his own people, that his kingdom may come in glory. You can't get more explicit than that. I joyfully accept in advance the death that God has appointed for me, in perfect submission and with joy, as being his most holy will. May the Lord accept my life and my death for the atonement of the unbelief of the Jewish people. Okay, so for the salvation, for the atonement of the unbelief of the Jewish people. And for this, quote, that the Lord may be accepted by his own people. That's the conversion of the Jews, right? That the Lord may be accepted by his own people and that his kingdom may come in glory. So she's uniting here the conversion of the Jews with the second coming, which, of course, she's uniting because we know that those two are united. We know as Catholics, paragraph 674 of the New Catechism says, quote, the glorious Messiah's coming is suspended at every moment of history until his recognition by all Israel. When the Jews convert, the second coming happens. And Eder Stein is offering her life and her death that the Lord may be accepted by his own people, step one, the conversion of the Jews, and that his kingdom may come in glory, step two, the second coming. Um, I'll read a few more quotes of hers. I firmly believe that the Lord has accepted my life as an offering for all. So once again, she's willingly offering up her life. It's important for me to keep Queen Esther in mind and remember how she was separated from her people just so that she could intercede for them before the king. I myself certainly am a poor and insignificant little Esther, but I take comfort from the fact that the king who has chosen me is infinitely kind and merciful. So I don't have time to go into the story, but if you remember the story of Queen Esther from the Old Testament, she hid the fact that she was Jewish. She became a concubine of the king, and she was able to intercede with the king so that instead of him exterminating the Jewish people, which was had been his intention, instead he did not exterminate them, but actually actually gave them his royal protection through the fact of her intercession. So she, as an insignificant concubine of the king, so to speak, interceded for her people that the king might spare them. And so Ederstein is placing herself in the position of Esther. And finally, a quote which shows again how totally, of course, this, this form of sanctity only works if you have total confidence in divine providence. And this is what Ederstein wrote about that. Whatever did not fit in with my plan did lie within the plan of God. I have an ever deeper and firmer belief that nothing is merely an accident when seen in the light of God, that my whole life, down to the smallest details, has been marked out for me in the plan of divine providence. That's absolutely necessary, right? If you're going to go joyfully to your death as a martyr, you'd better believe that is not an accident when seen in the light of God, but that your whole life down to the smallest details has been marked out for me, plan of divine providence. And in that light, let me point out a biographical note, which I omitted to mention at the beginning of the show, 
which is at Edith Stein's birthday. She, the day she was born, I believe it was October 10th, 1891, was Yom Kippur that year, was the Day of Atonement, the one day of the year on the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement for the sins of the Jewish people. The fact that she was born on Yom Kippur did not escape the notice of her piously Jewish mother, who felt that, boy, does she have some destiny in store if she's born on Yom Kippur, and she did have some destiny in store. She had the destiny to joyfully offer up her life for, uh, in atonement, as she wrote, in atonement for the unbelief of the Jewish people, and that the Lord may be accepted by his own people, and that his kingdom may come in glory. And she did so. And um, the final words, her final recorded words, when she was being taken from the convent in uh, Acton, Holland, with her sister Rosa, and herded onto the truck for Auschwitz, were, come, let us go for our people. That's exactly what she did. She went for her people, the Jewish people. So let's pray to Edelstein, St. Edelstein, that she may intercede with God and bring down a huge flood of grace for the conversion of the Jewish people, that the people to whom we all owe our beloved Savior Jesus might finally benefit fully from him having come 1970 years ago also, 1990 years ago also. Now, I have about two minutes left. Let me read a final quote from Edith Stein, St. Edith Stein, and then I'll close out the show, go out of the show, going back to that Mahler's Fifth, and um, maybe they'll, the station will allow a couple of minutes of that to play before they have to cut in to um, introduce the, the next show. So the closing beautiful theological reflection from Edith Stein follows. By assuming human nature, Christ became capable of suffering and dying. His divine nature, which he has had from eternity, gave infinite value and a redeeming power to his suffering and death. Christ's suffering and death continues in his mystical body and in each one of his members. Everyone has to suffer and die. And if he is a living member of the body of Christ, then his death and suffering acquires redemptive value through the divine nature of the head. In the light of the mystery of redemption, this is the ultimate reason for being. This is the ultimate meaning of life. The way of the Son of God is to get to the resurrection through suffering and the cross. Getting to resurrection glory with the Son of Man through suffering and death is also the way for each one of us and for all mankind. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, Roy Showman. I hope you join us again next week. And now let's return to a little bit of Gustav Mahler, a Jewish convert, and maybe we'll be able to get up to the resurrection part of this music. Bye for now. Thank you.